Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa buddhang dhammang sangang namasami. To hear the Dhamma at the right time is a blessing. And here we are in, we've left the family structures behind, skillful relationships, having unburdened yourself from association with the foolish. So these are the practical foundations. And the Buddha is, is very thorough, very full of very good suggestions. And they're in a kind of sequence, sensible sequence, starting from the outside and working inward. And now it is time to go and hear the Dhamma. And that would be to a, a talk like this, or in the days of the Buddha, before recordings, etc., and before books as well, one would go to hear a monk talk. And it should be at the right time because Dhamma talks don't always register with you. And to some degree, you can arrange it to be the right time by arranging your mind properly. So the Dhamma, people ask me, how should I listen to a Dhamma talk? Should I make notes? Should I remember the whole thing? And Ajahn Chah had a very good reply to that. He said, don't, this is not like a, an exam at the end of the talk. Just listen. And when something comes up, and it might be just a phrase or a sentence, a single point might come up. And that is, the mind will grab that because it needs it. So you can trust your mind that you're working on various issues and problems in your life. You're aspiring to positive things in your life as well. And that deeper mind is scanning the world, whether you know it or not, it's scanning the world all the time for information about how to solve an issue and a problem. This happens, you know, you go into a, you've been working on a problem for years sometimes. Go into a bookstore and a book falls on the floor, you pick it up and it's, it's exactly the answer to the question you had. Or you overhear somebody talking and they give you the answer to the, to the question. And now it seems supernatural when these things happen, but it, it is that the mind is scanning the world for answers. And so just listening to a Dhamma talk, you give attention to it, and, but don't force it. It's not a memory exercise. And you don't have to know the entire Dhamma. The Buddha says as much that it's just the essence. If it leads to the end of suffering, that's the point. An encyclopedic knowledge is very nice. We admire people who have encyclopedic knowledges of the, the Pali Canon. They can quote by memory. But that's, that's a feat of memory and intelligence. It's not necessarily a feat of Dhamma because Dhamma is about the heart. It's a matter of whether it's effective so 
you set your mind to allow the Dhamma to penetrate if the right thing is said. And it will be said in different ways by different people. You may not respond to it. You know, the exact same thing can be said by a number of people and you don't hear it, but one day the right person says it in the right way at the right time. And the penny drops. It clicks. So that's the importance of, of dhamma and timeliness. One of the characteristics of dhamma is actually that it's akaliko or timeless. It is true at all times in all situations, but there is an element of time that one needs to be in the right frame of mind, have formulated the question right before the answer can arrive. And then again, responding to different people and, and you shouldn't hesitate to look for different formulations of Dhamma. Sometimes it's in the form of writing. This is a, something of, of the modern world. At the time in the fifth century, there was no writing. So people were not responding to words precisely set down on paper. They were responding to the spoken word. And it would have been affected by the tone of voice and the kind of events that you had in your life up to that time. There's a story of the Buddha knowing that a particular farmer would achieve enlightenment if he heard the Dhamma, but he waited until the farmer had actually eaten. Although he was even late to the Dhamma talk, the Buddha was silent until the farmer arrived, and then he said, make sure that that man has been fed, and then because he knew that being hungry would interfere with his capacity to hear the Dhamma. So a number of uh, elements have to come together for the Dhamma to produce this awakening. This is the simile of the lotus as well, and why the lotus is the symbol for Buddhism. And so, and of course, lotuses are not all that common in the West, but in Asia, you see that the lotus opens and closes within a period of uh, a day and night. So it waits for the first shaft of sunlight and then the lotus opens. So it's the simile for this enlightenment as light strikes the mind, which is related to the petals of a lotus. The lotus opens and reveals all the beauty and intricacy of the mind when exposed to, to truth, the light goes on and the flower opens. So keep that in mind that you are a lotus flower, but you may be closed up and you're waiting for light to touch the mind. And then when it touches the mind, the mind opens. And of course the mind is not exclusive from the emotional center the, the heart is what opens. So it's timing. To be patient and obedient, to visit spiritual people. And I think all of these three are combined. Patient and obedient, 
and visiting spiritual people. There's a level of, of demand on behavior in uh, spiritual places that quite often is not there in uh, secular places. You know, football games and the crudeness of the ordinary world and the assertiveness and the lack of humility and the lack of patience. You know, you just go to the store and somebody's barging in ahead of you in the line or you're at a stop sign and somebody's honking behind you because you haven't gone exactly at the right moment. These are things which are antithetical to Dhamma, to hearing Dhamma. And so that's something you learn, actually. It's a beautiful thing, and it's lots of people have not understood that. And it's a training when you actually start to go to, say, monasteries and into spiritual groups, the idea of patience, you know. Sometimes the monks will even uh, test you a little bit, not show up for the talk for a while, let you sit there. <laughs> ask you to do certain things that would be strange in the secular world, but appropriate in the, in the spiritual world, that is obedience or, uh, you know, flexibility and lack of pride. So you're not, you're able to be humble and flexible. You know, when monks come to the robes, sometimes they're, all grown up and have been successful in life and then they show up and they're the most junior in the monastery and for and maybe for a, a few years you might have to um, tidy up the abbot's kuti because the abbot is given you dependence and you're you're the you're receiving instruction and you're starting at the bottom and you you have to empty the spittoons and wash the sheets and sweep the floors and you might you might have a phd in physics <laughs> and uh now you are expected to just do the most humble things and not have a problem with it to let go of this need to be recognized and proud and, and all these things it's a very beautiful thing it's different from the world So these are attributes that allow you to open to Dhamma when you let your ego go by and your pride and your restlessness and impatience because those block the reception of the Dhamma. And then visiting spiritual people. So it's not just uh, hearing things, but encountering spiritual people live and just seeing more or less how they do things. There was a, I think it was from a, a Jewish text the saying, I did not go to see the rabbi to hear what he had to say. I went to see how he tied his shoes. And uh, that's a very insightful remark. So the actual conduct, how people move in the world, how they choose and their timing and how they conduct themselves is you can 
you can absorb that. It's a milieu and you absorb it. The words, the Dhamma are very important, but also just how people live their lives and how they conduct themselves. The tone of voice, the movements of the bodies. All of these things are helpful mediums for you to receive the message. And it's for your sake. You are patient and obedient and you visit spiritual people, not for the sake of the spiritual people, for your sake. Because it's a blessing and you want to give yourself that blessing. It's for you. You're blessing your life. So these are just tips about how to do it. To discuss the Dhamma at the right time. So now you've heard the Dhamma at the right time. Can you discuss it at the right time? And the timing is, you know, you have to be, you have to be in a receptive mood yourself. And also the person you're talking to, it has to be appropriate for them. So you see some stories in the suttas where somebody comes up to the Buddha on alms round and he's just trying to get his food in the city and they, they want to ask him a question. And he says, not now, you know, maybe later, you know, so come to the monastery or something. This is the wrong time to be asking the questions. And the same for monks. If somebody's in a hurry, somebody's preoccupied with other things, one should be aware of this. But also even for you to discuss it, what is your mood? Why do you want to discuss it? Are you, are you, do you think you have something clever to say? Or do you want to make an impression? Are you angry? You want to argue about something? That might not be the time to discuss the Dhamma. This is not an argument. You know, the Dhamma, Uh, the essence of dhamma can't, it's not an argument that is, can be made compellingly. You can't overwhelm resistance in other people. There's, there's no, and there are very few arguments on the planet that are absolutely compelling. Maybe two and two is four, that's compelling. But beyond that, there's always questions. You can always be a skeptic. And there were many skeptics at the time of the Buddha and all throughout philosophical history in uh, contemporary times, in, in other countries and other religions, there were also skeptics. And that's an attitude where you're, you decided that, no, you're not going to be convinced by anything. And it's, there's nothing you can really do. And the Buddha is not really interested in that. He, he says, there's no way I can convince everybody, and I don't even want to. I, I don't have time for that. If you're sharp, if you're listening, if you're really interested, I will have more to say to you. But if you're resistant and so forth, I, I don't have time to waste. I don't have to fix you. <laughs> so this is, again, back to the student needs the teacher. Teacher does not need the student. To live austerely and purely, to see the noble truths and to realize Nibbana. Well, the austerities are moderate but necessary 
you can't live the life of a pig. <laughs> it's not going to work. You can't indulge. There's some demands that should be made on you, but there's also moderation. And the Buddha is, this is the nature of the middle path. It's not about how much fun you can have because the fun you're having is cheap fun. It's small fun. It's not big time fun. Actually, the austerities are so that it leads to this higher sense of exalted sense of freedom and being. And so this is important to remember that austerity and purity are necessary, but it doesn't have to be extreme. It can be moderate, but you can't be indulgent. This is the story of the Buddha, of course, that he has given up the palace life, which is the life of indulgence. And then he's hung out with a, a really rough crew that wants to starve themselves to death. And he's given it a good shot, he almost managed to starve himself to death. But then he gives that up and says, this is ridiculous. So the austerities, the real austerity is actually expressed in patience itself. Kanti, which is patience, paramang, which is perfection, uttamang, the highest. Uttamang is, uh, we're, we're having that word quite often, etang mangalang uttamang. This is the highest blessing, uttamang. And he expresses that in a sutta to some former extreme ascetics, fire worshippers. He talks to them and he says, you know, Instead of starving yourself to death or standing on one leg and staring into the sun, it would be better if you just were patient. It's a much higher form of austerity. So when we talk about austerity, we're just translating words. And we've, we, we came across this word before. To be patient and obedient. So there's patient has already come into the vocabulary here. Patience, Kanti, is the highest austerity. And so this is something to keep in mind. To, be, to, to live austerely is to live patiently, to be non-indulgent, but not to suffer. By the way, so if patience is the highest perfection, then what is impatience? It is a form of suffering. So impatience is continuous suffering. And to be patient is to, is to be free from suffering. To see the noble truths, we're getting very, very high here. We're going up the ladder of blessings. We're coming on to the, the, the peak of the mountain here. To see the noble truths, what noble truths? The four noble truths, there is suffering. There is a cause, there's an end, there's a way. So this is very, very important that you've put in these preliminary blessings to come to this stage. And this is for various serious practitioners. These are for the devoted lay people and the strong practitioners in the Sangha as well, because enlightenment is for all. You don't have to be a monk or a nun to attain enlightenment, but you do have to 
bless yourself with many things and you have to visit and you have to be patient and you have to be inquiring and you have to be timely in it in order to see the noble truths, to see through your own suffering, to release yourself from your own suffering. And to see the noble truths is to realize Nibbana. So now we're talking about... This is... I participated in actually translating this sutta about 30... more more than 30 years ago with a group at uh, the Bhavana Center and we were working on this because this phrase, etang mangalang uttamang, keeps appearing at each blessing. And it's, it says, it really says, this is a blessing supreme. Each one is the highest blessing. Uttamang means highest. And the, at the same time, you know, taking care of your relatives is not as high really as Nibbana. <laughs> So we had trouble with this. We translated it, the English translation, we gave it to, this is a, this is a, is a blessing supreme. So to live austerely and purely, to see the noble truths. So to be patient and obedient, to visit spiritual people, to discuss the Dhamma at the right time, this is a blessing supreme, a blessing but then we had, then now probably we get to Nibbana, which is the blessing supreme. So we, we just changed one word from a blessing supreme to the blessing supreme. It's the only thing we could do because it didn't quite make sense any other way. I'm sure we were being too fussy about that. <clears throat> so to see the noble truths is to realize Nibbana. It is the results of seeing to see and to know. A mind unshaken when touched by worldly states, sorrowless, stainless, and secure, is actually the aftermath of having attained Nibbana. So the blessings that follow the attainment, the realization of Nibbana. And what is Nibbana? The Buddha gives a number of definitions, but one is the cessation of suffering itself is Nibbana but it should be realized as, so that's a negative way, and, but it has a very positive aspect to it too. It is the experience of, uh, it's sometimes called the sorrowless. So it is sorrowless, stainless, and secure. It is, it is secure. So something that has security in a, in a universe which is insecure, which is impermanent. So another way to talk about Anicca is to talk about uncertainty because in a, in a universe that is swirling, flowing energy with nothing solid in it is uncertain, inherently uncertain. So something has been found that's secure. There's certainty. And so that this is obviously a psychological condition which as a result... It's a psychological condition, an emotional condition, which is the result of realizations and knowledge. And it's only knowledge if it changes how you experience the, the universe. And the mind is released. Released from what? 
It's released from harassments, from misunderstandings. It's released from its why it keeps having problems, why it keeps making mistakes, why it keeps seeing permanence where there is no permanence, why it keeps seeing substance where there is no substance, why it keeps seeing happiness in a situation which is intrinsically not happy. So this is what has been seen and why the mind is now returns to its luminous condition, pabasara, luminous condition, because it is no longer harassed by these misconceptions based in ignorance, based in just a lack of knowledge, misunderstanding. So now it's sorrowless. So this is something people need to understand. There's a very strong assertion that the mind of the fully enlightened person has no sorrow in it. It has no hindrances in it. And it is absolutely unshakably secure as well. So those who have fulfilled all these, all these blessings, are everywhere invincible. So this means that it's not subject to time and place that, you know, arahants get sick, arahants get old, arahants stub their toes, <laughs> arahants are insulted by people, arahants are praised by people, arahants get good food, they get bad food, etc. All kinds of events and situations and places happen to the enlightened person. But everywhere, in all situations, they are not subject to suffering anymore. So this is what it means to be everywhere invincible. And the last one is very beautiful. They find well-being everywhere. So it's not merely that they have become that they don't care anymore. They're absolutely indifferent to everything. They're untouchable because they're completely without response or apathetic. No, they're actually full of well-being, positive emotion everywhere. Everywhere they go, lightness, ease, joy, serenity, stillness, loving kindness, compassion. All of these things are available to the enlightened mind. And it, it rotates through that. By the way, the enlightened mind is also impermanent, but not in the sense of that it's sometimes not enlightened <laughs> and sometimes is. No, it's always enlightened. It's uh, the happiness, the well-being is sustained, but it, there's several shades and colors of well-being. Sometimes there's joy, sometimes there's serenity. Sometimes there's deep stillness. It rotates through these states, but it doesn't drop into the negative emotions. So very commonly people have a misunderstanding that, that everything's impermanent, the, the mind is impermanent. So sometimes, you know, you get angry and, but you know, you're kind of detached from that and you know, et cetera. So, no, 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 you're not enlightened and angry at the same time. The, the impermanence means that 
The mental states change, of course, ideas, etc., change, but they're always in the positive side. So think of the needle going into a green zone versus the red zone. The red zone is the negative emotions. The green zone is the positive emotions. The needle never swings out of the green zone, never goes into the negative area, but it moves in the green area. It moves back and forth between joy, energy, engagement in conversation, compassionate outreach, sensitivity to other beings, and then into deep stillness. Because the stillness is available to the mind, a deep, blissful stillness. Because the mind is no longer entangled, it doesn't have to sort out any more problems. The problem solving is done. And so that's why it can easily enter into these samadhi states, these deep samadhi states. So the Buddha himself enters into samadhi still. The eighth factor of the Eightfold Path is sama samadhi, right right serenity and stillness. And so the arahants and various stages of enlightenment all enter into that very easily without any impediments because they have resolved their basic existential issues. So this is the end of the Sutta on Great Blessings, the Mangala Sutta. And may you uh, achieve all of these in your practice.